Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. This is a follow-up to an earlier recording I did about the book, The Life of Captain Richard F. Burton by his wife, Isabel Burton. Last time I read from Volume 1, Chapter 8, so I'll read from Volume 1, Chapter 9. Uh, this book, much like the last recording I did, has a lot of excerpted material from Richard Burton. So she had her own writing and then includes uh, pieces or long kind of elements from his other books. He wrote like over 40 books. And you can, I did a kind of a longer uh, discussion about Richard Burton and his background biography in my first uh, recording of this. So I'll go back and if you want to go back and listen to that. But again, this will be chapter nine, volume one of The Life of Captain Richard F. Burton by his wife, Isabel Burton. Harar, the Muslim Abyssinia, the Timbuktu of East Africa, the exploration of which had been attempted in vain by some 30 travelers. Richard returned up the Red Sea to Egypt and much enjoyed the rest and safety for a short time and then returned to Bombay, his leave being up. But the wandering fever was still upon him. And as the most difficult place for a white man to enter was Harar in Somaliland, Abyssinia, he determined that he, that should be his object. It is inhabited by a very dangerous race to deal with and no white man had ever penetrated Harar. The first white man who went to Abyssinia was kept prisoner until he died. The East India Company had long wished to explore it because Bur Bara, the chief port of Somaliland, is the safest and best harbor on the western side of the Indian Ocean, far better than Aden. They went to work with that strange mixture of caution and generosity with which they treated those of their servants who stepped out of what Richard calls their quarter deck routine, that is, to let him go as a private traveler and the government to give him no protection but would allow him to retain the same pay that he would enjoy whilst on leave. Dr. Carter and others refused to do more than to coast along in a cruiser. Richard applied for a Lieutenant Hearn of the 1st Bombay Fusiliers, Lieutenant Stroyan Indian Navy, and Lieutenant Speak, 46 Bengal Native Infantry. Hearn was distinguished by his surveys, photography, and mechanics on the west coast of India, in Sindh, and on the Punjab rivers. Stroyan as amateur surveyor and speak, collector of the fauna of Tibet and the Himalayas and sportsman. Assistant Surgeon Ellerton Stocks, botanist traveler and a first-rate man in all ways, died before the expedition started. Jealousy, as usual, immediately rose up in opposition. First, Sir James Outram, political resident at Auden, called it a tempting of providence, and Dr. Buist, the editor of the Bombay Times, was told to, to run down the Somali expedition in which task he was assisted by the unpopular chaplain. This was not very gratifying to four high-spirited men. So instead of using Berbera as a base of operations, then westward to Harar, and then southeast to Zanzibar, the resident changed the whole scheme and made it fail. Hearn was to go to Berbera, where he was joined later by Stroyan. Speak was to land in a small harbor called Bundar Gurey and to trace the watershed of the Wadi Nogal to buy horses and camels and collect red earth with gold in it but his little expedition failed through his guide's treachery. Hearn and Stroyan succeeded. Richard reserved to him for himself the post of danger. Harar was as difficult to enter as Mecca. It is the southernmost masonry-built settlement in North Equatorial Africa. He would go as an Arab merchant. Harar had never been visited, had its own language, its own unique history and traditions. The language was unwritten, but he wrote a grammar and a vocabulary in which the entomology is given, and there he had enough savage anthropology to interest him. He writes, quote, In the first place, Berbera is the true key of the Red Sea, the center of East African traffic, and the only safe place for shipping upon the western Erythrean shore from Suez to 
guarded fui, backed by lands capable of cultivation and by hills covered with pine and other valuable trees, enjoying a comparatively temperate climate with a regular of the thin monsoon. This harbor has been coveted by many a foreign conqueror. Circumstances have thrown it into our arms, and if we refuse a chance, another and a rival nation will not be so blind. We have since given it away and kept the far inferior Aden. We are bound to protect the lives of subjects on this coast. In 1825, the crew of the Mary Ann brig was treacherously murdered by the Somali. They continued in that state, and if tomorrow a peninsular or oriental company steamer by any chance fell into their power, it would be the same history. Harar, scarcely 300 miles distance from Aden, is a counterpart of the ill-famed Timbuktu. A tradition exists that with the entrance of the first Christian, Harar will fall. All, therefore, who have attempted it were murdered. It was therefore a point of honor with me to utilize my title of Haji by entering this city, visiting its ruler, and returning in safety after breaking the guardian spell." Unquote. This expedition of Harar was one of Richard's most splendid and dangerous expeditions, and for some reason or other the least known. The reason being, as I think, that his pilgrimage to Mecca was still making a great noise, and that the Crimean War had cropped up, deadening the interest in all personal adventure. He therefore thought himself fortunate in being able to persuade Lord Elphinstone, governor of Bombay, to patronize an expedition into Somaliland. He was away four months. The journey was useful, at least it has proved so to the Egyptians, to the English, and now to the Italians. He sailed away, leaving Hearn, Stroyan, and Speak, each engaged on his respective work and arrived at Zyla. Quote, my ship companions, he writes, were the wildest of the wild, and as we came into Port Zela, a bark came up to give us the bad news. Friendship between the emir of Harar and the governor of Zela had been broken. The road through the Issa Somal had been closed by the murder of Masood, a favorite slave and adopted son of Sharmar Kay. All strangers had been expelled to the city for some misconduct by the Harar chief. Moreover, smallpox was raging there with such violence that the Gala peasantry would allow neither ingress nor egress. The tide was out, and we waded a quarter of a mile amongst giant crabs who showed grisly claws, sharp coralline, and seaweed so thick as to become almost like a mat. In the shallower parts of the sun was painfully hot, even to my well-tried feet. I was taken immediately to the governor at Zela, a fellow haji, who gave me hospitality. The well-known sounds of El Islam returned from memory. Again, the melodious chant of the Muzin, no evening bell can compare with it for solemnity and beauty. And in the neighboring mosque, the loudly intoned Amin and Alo Akbar, far superior to any organ, rang in my ear. The evening gun of camp was represented by the Nakara, or kettle drum, which sounded about 7 p.m. at the southern gate. At 10, a second drumming warned the paterfamilias that it was time for home, and thieves and lovers that it was the hour for bastinado. Nightfall was ushered in by the song, the dance, and the marriage festival. Here, no per permission is required for native music in the lines, and muffled figures flitted mysteriously through dark alleys. After a peep through the open window, I fell asleep, feeling once more at home. I was too much of an Arab to weary of the endless preparation, preparations for forming a caravan. I used to provide myself with a Quran and sit receiving visitors, and would occasionally go into the mosque, my servant carrying the prayer carpet, 300 pairs of eyes staring at me. And after reciting the customary Tubo prayer in honor of the mosque, I would place the sword and rosary before me and taking the Quran, read the cow chapter, number 18, in a loud and twanging voice. This is the character I adopted. You will bear in mind, if you please, that I am a Muslim merchant, a character not to be confounded with the notable individuals seen on change, Mercator 
in the East is a compound of tradesman, divine, and TG. Usually of gentle birth, he is everywhere welcomed and respected, and he bears in his mind and manner that, if Allah please, he may become prime minister a month after he has sold you a yard of cloth. Commerce appears to be an accident, not an essential, with him, yet he is by no means deficient in acumen. He is a grave and reverend senior, with rosary in hand and Quran on lip, is generally a pilgrim, talks at dreary length about holy places, writes a pretty hand, has read and can recite much poetry, is master of his religion, demeans himself with respectability, is perfect on all points of ceremony and politeness, and feels equally at home whether sultan or slave sit upon his counter. He has a wife and children in his own country, where he intends to spend the remnant of his days. But the world is uncertain. Fate descends, and man's eyes seeth it not. The earth is a charnel house, briefly. His many old saws give him a kind of theoretical consciousness that his bones may molder in other places but his fatherland. For half a generation we have been masters of Aden, filling southern Arabia with our calicos and rupees. What is the present state of affairs there? We are dared by the Bedouins to come forth from behind our stone walls and fight like men in the plain. British protégés are slaughtered within the range of our guns. Our allies' villages have been burned in sight of Aden. Our deserters are welcomed and our fugitive felons protected. Our supplies are cut off and the garrison is reduced to extreme distress at the word of a half-naked bandit. The miscreant Boggy, who murdered Captain Milne in cold blood, still roams the hills unpunished. Gross insults are the sole acknowledgments of our peaceful overtures. The British flag has been fired upon without return, our cruisers being ordered to act only on the defensive, and our forbearance to attack is universally asserted and believed to arise from mere cowardice. Such is, and such will be, the opinion and the character of the Arab. I stayed here for 26 days, rising at dawn, then went to the terrace to perform my devotions and make my observation of my neighbors. Breakfast at six, then coffee, pipe, and a nap. Then receive visitors <clears throat> who come by dozens with nothing to do or say. When they were only Somal, I wrote Arabic or extracted from some useful book. When Arabs were there, I would recite tales from the Arabian Nights to their great delight. At 11, dinner, more coffee and pipes. Then the natives would go to sleep, and I wrote my journals and studies. <clears throat> About 2 p.m., more visitors would come, and at sunset again to the terrace, or walk to a mosque where games are going on, or stroll to a camp of Badawi. The gates are locked at sunset, and the keys are carried to the haji. It is not safe to be without the city later. Then comes supper. After it, we repair to the roof to enjoy the prospect of the far Tajara Hills and the white moonbeams sleeping upon the nearer sea. The evening star hangs like a diamond upon the still horizon, and the moon a pink zone of light mist shading off into turquoise blue and a delicate green-like chrysopras invests the heavens with a peculiar charm. The scene is truly suggestive. Behind us, purpling in the night air and silvered by the radiance from above, by the worlds and mountains, wolds and mountains tended by the fiercest of savages, their shadowy, mysterious forms exciting vague alarms in the traveler's breast. Sweet as the harp of David, the night breeze and the music of the water comes up from the sea, but the ripple and rustling sound alternate with the hyena's laugh and the jackal's cry and the wild dog's lengthened howl. This journey, which occupied nearly four months, was to be through a savage, treacherous, ferocious, and bloodthirsty people whose tribes were in a constant state of blood feud. The party consisted of nine, an Aban or guide, three Arab matchlock men, two women cooks who were called Shahrazad and Dina Zardeh, after the Arabian Nights, a fourth servant, and a Bedouin woman to drive a donkey, which camels will follow and which is the custom. 
We had four or five mules saddled and bridled and camels for the baggage. Everyone wept over us and considered us dead men. The Abbot objected to some routes on account of avoiding tribes, which he had a blood feud. This was, I have said, far more, far the most dangerous of Richard's explorations, quite as difficult as Mecca and far from far more difficult than anything Stanley has ever done with his advantages of med, money, and luxuries. The women seemed to be much hardier than the men. They carried the pipe and tobacco, led the camels, adjusted the burdens at the halt, unloaded the cattle, disposed the baggage, covered them with a mat tent, cooked the food, made tea and coffee, and bivouacked outside the tent. He writes, quote, the air was fresh and clear, and the night breeze was delicious after the stormy breath of day. The weary confinement of walls made the weary expanse a luxury to the sight, whilst the tumbling of the surf upon the near shore and the music of the jackal predisposed to sweet sleep. We now felt that at length the die was cast. Placing my pistols by my side with my rifle butt for a pillow and its barrel as a bedfellow, I sought repose with none of the apprehension which is even the most stout-hearted traveler knows before the start. It is the difference between a fancy and reality, between anxiety and certainty. To men gifted with any imaginative powers, the anticipation must ever be worse than the event. Thus it happens that he who feels a thrill of fear before engaging in a peril exchanges it for a throb of exultation when he finds himself hand-to-hand -hand with the danger. Unquote. The description of the journey is filled in his notes by being hindered and almost captured by the Badawi, Lamed with thorns, the camels casting themselves down from fatigue, famishing from hunger, and worse, from thirst. The only water being sulfurous, which affected both man and beast. And attacks from lions, sleep being disturbed by large ants, three quarters of an inch long, with venomous stings. Everywhere they went, everybody wept over them as dead men. He finds time, nevertheless, to remark that at the height of 3,350 feet, he found a buttercup and heard a woodpecker tapping that reminded him of home. He describes a, a sham attack of 12 Badawi who, when they saw that what his revolver could do, said they were only in fun. At one of the crawls, he gives an account of how, being surrounded by Somalis, they were boasting of their shooting and of the skill with which they used the shield, but they seemed not to understand the proper use of the sword. Quote, Thinking it was well to impress them with the superiority of arms, I requested them to put up one of their shields as a mark. They laughed very much, but would not comply. The Somali hate a vulture because it eats the dead and dying. So, seeing a large brown bare-necked vulture at 20 paces distance, I shot it with my revolver. Then I loaded a gun with swan shot, which they had never seen, and aiming at a bird that they considered far out of gunshot distance, I knocked it over flying. Fresh screams followed this marvelous feat, and they said, Lo, he bringeth down the birds from heaven. Their chief, putting his forefinger in his mouth, praised Allah, and prayed to be defended from such a calamity. And always after, when they saw me approach, they said, Here comes the sheikh who knows knowledge. I then gave a stick to the best man. I provided myself in the same way, and allowed him to cut at me as much ever he liked, easily warding off the blows with a parry. After repeated failures, and upon tiring himself enormously, he received a sounding blow from me upon the least bony part of his person. The crowd laughed long and loud, and the knight at arms retired in confusion. Every now and then we got into difficulties with the Badawin, who would not allow us to proceed, declaring the land was theirs. We did not deny the claim, but I threatened sorcery, death, and wild beasts in foraging parties to their camels, children, and women. It generally brought them to their senses. They would spit on us for good luck and let us depart. Once a chief was smitten by Shahrazad's bulky charms and wanted to carry her off, 
Once in the evening, we came upon the fresh trail of a large Haber Awal cavalcade, which frightened my companions dreadfully. We were only nine men and two women to contend against 200 horsemen and all except the Hamal and Long Guled, who would have run away at the first charge. The worst of the ride was over rough and stony road, the thorns tearing their feet and naked legs and the camel slipping over the rounded pebbles. The joy of coming to a crawl was great, where the chiefs of the village appeared, bringing soft speech, sweet water, new milk, fat sheep and goats, and a tobe of cutch canvas. We passed a quiet, luxurious day of coffee and pipes, fresh cream and roasted mutton. After the great heats and dangers from horsemen on the plain, we enjoyed the cool breeze of the hills, cloudy skies, and the verdure of the glades which refreshed our beasts. Here I shot a few hawks and was rewarded with loud exclamations of Allah preserve thy hand. May thy skill never fail thee before the foe. A woman ran away from my steam kettle, thinking it was a weapon. They looked upon my sunburnt skin with a favor they denied to the lime white face. The Somali Bedouin gradually affiliated me to their tribes. At one village, the people rushed out, exclaiming, Lo, let us look at the kings. At others, come and see the white man. He is the governor of Zela. My fairness, for brown as I am, I am fair to them. And the Arab dress made me sometimes the ruler of Aden, the chief of Zela, the Haji's son, a boy, an old woman, a man painted white, a warrior in silver armor, a merchant, a pilgrim, a head priest, Ahmed the Indian, a Turk, an Egyptian, a Frenchman, a Banyan, a Sharif, and lastly, a calamity sent down from heaven to weary out the lives of the Somal. Every crawl had its own conjecture. On December 9th, I rode a little off my way to visit some ruins, Darbi Ya Kola, or Kola's Fort, so called on account of its Gala queen. There were once two cities, Albaba, and they fought like the Kilkenny cats till both were eaten up. There was about 300, this was about 300 years ago, and the substantial ruins have fought a stern fight with time. Remnants of houses cumber the soil, and the carefully built wells are filled with rubbish. The palace was pointed out to me with its walls of stone and clay, intersected by layers of woodwork. The mosque is a large, roofless building containing 12 square pillars of rude masonry, and the mirab, or prayer niche, is denoted by a circular arch of tolerable construction. But the voice of the muezzin is hushed forever, and creepers now twine around the ruined fane. The scene was still and dreary as the grave. For a mile and a half in length, all was ruins, ruins, ruins. Leaving this dead city, we rode towards the southwest between two rugged hills. Topping the ridge, we stood for a few minutes to observe the view before us. Beneath our feet lay a long grassy plain. The sight must have gladdened the hearts of our starving mules. And for the first time in Africa, horses appeared grazing free amongst the bushes. A little further off lay the Ilonda Valley, studded with graves and dark with verdure. Beyond it stretched the Wadi Harawa, a long gloomy hollow in the general level. The background was a bold sweep of Blue Hill, the second gradient of the Harar line, and on its summit, closing the western horizon, lay a golden streak, the Marar Prairie. Already I felt at the end of my journey. It was not an unusual thing in the dust to see a large animal following us with quick, stealthy strides, and that I, sending a rifle ball as correctly as I could in the direction, put a flight to a large lion. The nearer I got to Harar, the more I was stopped by parties of Gallus, and some went on to report evil of me, and many threats were uttered. The end of time in the last march turned tail. Dost thou believe me to be a coward, O pilgrim? Of a truth I do, I answered. Nothing abashed, and with joy at his heart, he hammered his mule with his heel and rode off, saying, What hath a man but a single life? And he who throweth it away, what is he but a fool? Unquote. 
gives a good account of elephant hunting, but they did not get near any. The water was, in some places, so hard it raised lumps like nettle stings, and they had to butter themselves. At one place, the inhabitants flocked out to stare at them. He fired his rifle by way of salute over the head of the prettiest girl. The people delighted, exclaimed, Maud, Maud, honor to thee. And he replied with shouts of, Kuliban, may heaven aid thee, unquote. Quote, when the, there is any danger, a Somali watchman sings and addresses himself in dialogue with different voices to pervade, persuade thieves that several men are watching. Ours was a spectacle of wildness as he sat before the blazing fire. The end of time conceived the jocose idea of crowning me king of the country with loud cries of bua, 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 while showering leaves from a gum tree, gum tree and water from a prayer bottle over my head, and then with all solemnity bound on my turban. I was hindered and threatened in no end of places, and my companions threatened to desert me, saying, quote, they will spoil that white skin of thine at Harar, unquote. Still I pushed on. The Gouda Bursi Badawi numbered 10,000 spears. One night we came upon a sheet of bright blaze, a fire threatening the whole prairie. At last came the sign of leaving the desert. The scene lifted and we came to the second step of the Ethiopian highlands. In the midst of the valley beneath ran a serpentine of shining waters, the gladdest spectacle we had yet witnessed. Further in front, masses of hill rose abruptly from shady valleys, encircled on the far horizon by a straight blue line of ground resembling a distant ski sea. Behind us glared the desert. We had now reached the outskirts of civilization, where man, abandoning his flocks and herds, settles, cultivates, and attends to the comforts of life. We saw fields with lanes between the daisy, the thistle, the sweetbriar, settled villages, surrounded by strong abatis of thorns, which stud the hills everywhere, clumps of trees to which beehives are hung, and yellow crops of holcus or grain. The harvest home song sounded pleasant to my ears, and was contrasting with the silent desert, the hum of man's habitation with music. They flocked out to gaze upon us, unarmed, and welcomed us. We bathed in the waters, whose on whose banks were a multitude of huge mantidae, pink and tender green. I now had ample time to see the manners and customs of the settled Somali as I was conducted to the cottage of the Jirad's pretty wife and learned the home and the day and the food. They spoke Harari, Somali, Gala, Arabic, and dialects. dialects. My kettle seems to have created surprise everywhere. Here the last preparations were made for entering this dreadful city. All my people and my camels and most of my goods had to be left here for the return journey and it was the duty of this chief, Jirad, to accompany me. I happened to hear one of them say, Of what use is his gun? Before he could fetch fire, I should put this arrow through him. I wheeled round and discharged a barrel over their heads, which threw them into convulsions of terror. The man I had now to depend upon was Adan bin Kaushan, a strong, wiry, wiry Bedouin. He was tricky, ambitious, greedy of gain, fickle, restless, and treacherous, a cunning idiot, always so difficult to deal with. His sister was married to the father of the emir of Harar, but he said he would as soon walk into the crocodile's mouth as to go into the walls of Harar. He received a sword, a Quran, a turban, an Arab waistcoat of gaudy satin, about 70 tobes, and a similar proportion of indigo-dyed stuff. He privily complained to me that the Hamal had given him but 12 cloths. A list of his wants will best explain the man. He begged me to bring him from Berbera, a silver-hilted sword and some soap, $1,000, two sets of silver bracelets, 20 guns with powder and shot, snuff, a scarlet cloth coat embroidered with gold, 
some poison that would not fail, and any other little article of luxury which might be supposed to suit him. In return, he was to present me with horses, mules, slaves, ivory, and other valuables. He forgot, however, to do so before he departed. Whilst we were discussing the project and getting on satisfactorily, five strangers well-mounted rode in. Two were citizens and three were Haber Awal Badawi, high in the emir's confidence. They had been sent to settle blood money with Adan. But they then told him that I, the Arab, was not one who brought and sold, who bought and sold, but a spy, and that my party should be sent to prisoners, should be sent prisoners to Harar. Adan would not give it, give us up, falsely promising to present our salams to the emir. When they were gone, he told me how afraid he was, and that it was impossible for him to conduct me to the city. I then relied. I then relied. I then relied upon what has made many a small man great, my good star and audacity. Driven to bay, I wrote an English letter from the political agent at Aden to the Emir of Harar, intending to deliver it in person. It was neck or nothing. I only took what was necessary. Shirwa, the son of Adan, the Badawi acted on, and Maud Said, and left everything behind me, excepting some presents for the Emir, a change of clothes, an Arab book or two, a few biscuits, ammunition, and a little tobacco. I passed through a lovely country and was stopped by the Gallus and by the harbor Awal Badawi who offered, if we could, wait till sunrise, take us to the city. So I returned a polite answer, leading them to expect that I should wait till 8 a.m. for them. I left my journal, sketches, and books in charge of Adan. The journey was hard, and I encountered a Harar grandee, mounted upon a handsomely comparison mule and attended by servants. He was very courteous, and seeing me thirsty, ordered me a cup of water. Finally arriving at the crest of a hill stood the city, the end of my present travel, a long, somber line, strikingly contrasting with the whitewashed towns of the east. The spectacle, materially speaking, was a disappointment. Nothing conspicuous appeared but two gray minarets of rude shape, and many would have grudged exposing three lives to win so paltry a prize. But of all that have attempted it, none have ever succeeded in entering that pile of stones. The thoroughbred traveler will understand my exultation, although my two companions exchanged glances of wonder. Stopping while my companions bathed, I retired to the wayside and sketched the town. We arrived at 3 p.m., and advancing to the gate, Maud Said accosted, accosted a warder whom he knew, sent our salams to the emir, saying we came from Aden, and requested the honor of audience. The harbor a wall collected round me inside the town, and scowling, inquired why we had not apprised them of our intention of entering the city, but it was war to the knife, and I did not deign to answer. Ten days at Harar, the most exciting trial of all. We were kept waiting half an hour and were told by the warder to pass the threshold. Languled gave his animal to the two Badawi, everyone advising my attendants to escape with the beasts as we were going to be killed on the road to this African St. James. We were ordered to run, but we leisurely led our mules in spite of the guide's wrath, entered the gate and strolled down the yard, which was full of galas with spears, and the waiting gave me an opportunity to inspect the place. I walked into a vast hall, a hundred feet long, between two long rows, rows of gala spearmen, between whose lines I had to pass. They were large, half-naked naked savages, standing like statues with fierce, movable eyes, each one holding, with its butt end on the ground, a huge spear with a head the size of a shovel. I purposely sauntered down them coolly with a swagger, with my eyes fixed upon their dangerous-looking faces. I had a six-shooter concealed in my waist belt, and determined, at the first show of excitement, to run up to the emir, 
and put it to his head if it were necessary to save my own life. The emir was like a little Indian rajah, an etiolated youth about 24 or 25 years old, plain, thin-bearded, with a yellow complexion, wrinkled brows, and protruding eyes. His dress was a flowing robe of crimson cloth, edged with snowy fur, and a narrow white turban tightly twisted round a tall conical cap of red velvet, like the old Turkish headgear of our painters. His throne was a common Indian kursi, or raised cot, about five feet long, with back and side supported by a dwarf railing. Being an invalid, he rested his elbow upon a pillow, under which he appeared the hilt of a clutch saber. Ranged in double line, perpendicular to the emir, stood the court, his cousins and nearest relations, with right arms bared after the fashion of Abyssinia. I entered this second avenue of gala spearsmen with a loud, Peace be upon ye, to which H.H. replied, replying graciously and extending a hand, bony and yellow as a kite's claw, snapped his thumb and middle finger. Two chamberlains stepping forward held my forearms and assisted me to bend over, bend low over the fingers, which, however, I did not kiss, being naturally averse to performing that operation upon any but a woman's hand. My two servants then took their turn. In this case, after the back was saluted, the palm was presented for a repetition. These preliminaries concluded, we were led to and seated upon a mat in front of the emir, who directed towards us a frowning brow and an inquisitive eye. I made some inquiries about the emir's health. He shook his head captiously and inquired our errand. I drew from my pocket my own letter. It was carried by a chamberlain with hands veiled to his tobe to the emir, who, after a brief glance, laid it upon the couch and demanded further explanation. I then represented in Arabic that we had come from Aden, bearing the compliments of Dar Daula, the governor, and that we had entered Harar to see the light of HH's countenance. This information concluded with a little speech describing the changes of political agents in Arabia and alluding to the friendship formerly existing between the English and the deceased chief Abu Bakr. The emir smiled graciously. This smile, I must own, was a relief. We had been prepared for the worse, and the aspect of affairs in the palace was by no means reassuring. Whispering to his treasurer, a little ugly man with a bald, bad, baldly shaven head, coarse figures, pug nose, angry eyes, and stubby beard, the emir made a sign for us to retire. The base main was repeated, and we backed out of the audience shed in high favor. According to the grandiloquent Bruce, the court of London and that of Abyssinia are, in their principles, one. The loiterers in the Harar Palace Yard, who had before regarded us with cutthroat looks, now smiled as though they loved us. Marshaled by the guard, we issued from the precincts, and after walking a hundred yards, entered from the Amir's second palace, which we were told to consider our home. There we found the Badawi, who, scarcely believing that we had escaped alive, grinned in the joy of their hearts, and we were at once provided from the chief's kitchen with a dish of shabta, holcus cake soaked in sour milk, and thickly powdered with red pepper, the salt of this inland region. When we had eaten, the treasure reappeared, bearing the emir's command that we should call upon his wazir, the Garag Muhammad. We found a venerable old man whose benevolent countenance belied the reports current about him in Somaliland. Half rising, although his wrinkled brow showed suffering, he seated me by his side upon the carpeted masonry bench where lay the implements of his craft, reeds, inkstands, and whitewashed boards of paper politely welcomed me, and gravely stroking his cotton-colored beard, desired to know my object in good Arabic. I replied in the words used to the emir, adding, however, some details, 
how in the old day one Madar Fari had been charged by the late Sultan Abu Bakr with a present to the governor of Aden, and that it was the wish of our people to reestablish friendly, friendly relations in commercial intercourse with Harar. Care, inshallah, it is well, if Allah please, ejaculated the Jirad. I then bent over his hand and took leave. Returning, we inquired anxiously of the treasurer about my servant's arms, which had not been returned, and were assured that they had been placed in the safest of storehouses, the palace. I then sent a common six-barreled revolver as a present to the emir, explaining its use to the bearer, and we were prepared to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. The interior of our new house was a clean room with plain walls and a floor of tamped earth. Opposite the entrance were two broad steps of masonry, raised about two feet and a yard above the ground, and covered with a hard matting. I contrived to make upon the higher ledge a bed with the cushions which my companions used as shabraks. And after seeing the mules fed and tethered, lay down to rest, worn out by fatigue and profoundly impressed with the poesy of our position. I was under the roof of a bigoted prince whose least word was death. Amongst the people who detest foreigners, the only European that had ever passed over their inhospitable threshold. And more than that, I was the fated instrument of their future downfall, unquote. He gives a very detailed account of the city of Harar, its inhabitants, and all he saw during his 10 days there, for which I refer people to First Footsteps in East Africa, one large volume published in 1856. He says, quote, the explorer must frequently rest satisfied with descrying from his pigsaw the knowledge which another more fortunate is destined to acquire. Inside Harar, I was so closely watched that it was impossible to put pen to paper. It was only when I got back to Walensi that I hastily collected the grammatical forms and a vocabulary which proves that the language is not Arabic, that it has an affinity with the Amharic. Harar has its own tongue, unintelligible to any save the citizens. Its little population of 8,000 souls is a distinct race. A common proverb is hard as the heart of Harar. They are extremely bigoted, especially against Christians, and are fond of a religious war or jihad with the Gallus. They hold foreigners in hate and contempt and divide them into two classes, Arabs and Somal. The Somals say that the state dungeon is beneath the palace and that he who once enters it lives with unkempt beard and untrimmed nails till the day when death sets him free. There is nothing more terrible. The captive is heavily ironed, lies in a filthy dungeon, and receives no food except what he can obtain from his own family or buy or beg from his guards. The emir has bad health. I considered him consumptive. It is something in my favor that, as soon as I departed, he wrote to the acting political resident at Aden, earnestly begging him to be supplied with a frank physician and offering protection to any European who might be persuaded to visit his dominions. His rule was severe, if not just, and it has all the prestige of secrecy. Even the Gerard Muhammad, even the Queen Dowager, are threatened with fetters if they offer uncalled for advice. His principal occupation is spying his many stalwart cousins, indulging in vain fears of the English and the Turks, amassing treasure by commerce and cheating. The Emir Ahmed is alive to the fact that some state should hedge in a prince. Neither weapons nor rosaries are allowed in his presence. A chamberlain's robe acts as a spittoon. Whenever anything is given to or taken from him, his hand must be kissed. Even on horseback, two attendants fan him with the hems of their garments. Except when engaged on heronic visits, which he, like his father, pays to the streets and byways at night, he is always surrounded by a strong bodyguard. He rides to mosque, escorted by a dozen horsemen, 
and a score of footmen with guns and whips precede him. By his side walks an officer, shading him with a huge and heavily fringed red satin umbrella. From India to Abyssinia, the sign of princely dignity. Even at his prayers, two or three chosen matchlock men stand over him with lighted fusees. When he rides forth in public, he is escorted by a party of 50 men. The running footmen crack their whips and shout, let, let, go, go. And the citizens avoid stripes by retreating into the nearest house or running into another street. Immediately on our arrival, we were called upon by all sorts of Arabs. They were very civil to me at first, but when the emir ceased to send for me, just as at civilized courts, they prudently cut me. The moment the emir sent for me, my Haber Awal enemies, seeing the tide of fortune setting in my favor, changed their tactics and proposed themselves as my escort to return to Bur Bara, which I politely refused. They did, they did me all the harm they could, but my good star triumphed. After one day's rest, I was summoned to wait upon Gerard Muhammad, who was prime minister. Sword in hand and followed by my two attendants, I walked to the palace and found him surrounded by six counselors who were eating jot which has somewhat the effect of hashish. He sat me by his right hand on the dais where I ate jot, being fortunately used to these things and fingered the rosary, then followed prayer, then a theological discussion, which fortunately I was able to distinguish, distinguish myself. My theology won general approbation and kind glances from the elders. In a very short time, I was set for by the emir, and this time was allowed to approach the outer door with covered feet. I entered as ceremoniously as before, and the prince motioned me to sit near the Gerard on a Persian rug to the right of the throne, my attendants on humble mats at a greater distance. After sundry inquiries of what was going on at Aden, the residence letter was suddenly produced by the emir, who bade me explain its contents and wished to know if it was my intention to buy and sell at Harar. I replied, quote, we are neither buyers nor sellers. We have become your guests to pay our respects to the emir, who may Allah preserve, and that the friendship between the two powers may endure, unquote. The emir was pleased, and I therefore ventured to hope that the prince would soon permit me to return, as the air of Harar was too dry for me, and that we were in danger of smallpox then raging in the town. And though the Gerard, the emir said, and through the Gerard, the emir said, the reply will be vouchsafed, and the interview is over. I sent my salam to one of the ulema, Sheikh Jami. He accepted the excuse of health and came to see me. He was remarkably well-read in the religious sciences and a great man at Mecca with much influence with the Sultan and employed on political missions amongst the chiefs. He started with the intention of winning the crown of glory by murdering the British resident at Aden, but he was so struck with the order of justice of our rule, he offered El Islam to that officer who received it so urbanely that the simple Eastern, instead of cutting, off, cutting the Kafir's throat, began to pray fervently for his conversion. We were kindly looked upon by a sick and decrepit eunuch named Sultan. I used to spend my evenings preaching to the Gallus. The Jarad Muhammad was now worked upon by the Haber Awal, my enemies, to make inquiries about me, and one of the Ayal Gadid clan came up and reported that three brothers had landed in the Samal country, that two of them were anxiously awaiting at Berbera the return of the fourth from Harar, and that, though dressed like Moslems, they were really English spies in government employ and orders were issued for cutting off caravans. We, however, were summoned to the Gerards, where, fortunately for me, I found him suffering badly from bronchitis. I saw my chance. I related to him all its symptoms and told him that if I could only get down to Aden, 
I could send him all the right remedies with directions. He clung to the hope of escaping his sufferings and begged me to lose no time. Presently, the emir sent for him, and in a few minutes I was sent for alone. A long conversation ensued about the state of Aden, of Zela, of Berbera, and of Stambul. The chief put a variety of questions about Arabia and every object there. The answer was that the necessity of commerce confined us to the gloomy rock Aden. He used some obliging ex expressions about desiring our friendship and having considerable respect for a people who built, he understood, large ships. I took the opportunity of praising Harar in cautious phrase and especially of regretting that its coffee was not better known amongst the Franks. The small, wizen-faced man smiled, as Moslems say, the smile of Umar. Seeing his brow relax for the first time, I told him that, being now restored to health, we requested, we requested his commands for Aden. He signified consent with a nod, and the Jarad, with many compliments, gave me a letter addressed to the political resident and requested me to take charge of a mule, mule as a present. I then arose, recited a short prayer, the gist of which was that the emir's days and reign must be long in the land and that the faces of his foes might be blackened here and hereafter, bent over his hand and retired. Returning to the Gerard's levy hut, I saw by the countenances of my two attendants that they were not a little anxious about the interview and comforted them with the whispered word, Aka, all right. Presently appeared the Gerard accompanied by two men who brought my servant's arms and the revolver which I had sent to the prince. This was a contretemps. It was a clearly impossible to take back the present. Besides which, I suspected some finesse to discover my feelings toward him. The other course would ensure delay. I told the Gerard that the weapon was intended especially to preserve the emir's life, and for further effect, snapped caps in rapid succession to the infinite terror of the August company. The minister returned to his master and soon brought back the information that, after a day or two, another mule should be given to me. With suitable acknowledgments, we arose, blessed the Gerard, bade adieu to the assembly, and departed joyful. The Hamal in his glee, speaking broken English, even the emir's courtyard. Sheikh Jami was rendered joyful by the news he told me when I arrived. He had been informed that in the town was a man who had brought down the birds from heaven, and the citizens had been thrown into great excitement by my probable intentions. One of the principal ulema and a distinguished haji had been dreaming dreams in my favor and sent their salams. My long residence in the east had made me grateful to the learned. learned whose influence over the people, when unbiased by bigotry, is for the good. On January 11th, I was sent for by the Gerard and given the second mule. He begged me not to forget his remedies as soon as I reached Aden, which I told him that I would start on the morrow. I scarcely had got in when there were heavy showers and thunder. When I got up to mount early on Friday morning, of course a mule had strayed. Then Sheikh Jami would not go till Monday. Now, as I had been absent from my goods and chattels a whole fortnight, as the people at Harar are immensely fickle, as you never know the moment that the emir may change his mind, for all African cities are prisons on a large scale. You enter by your own will, but you leave by another's. I longed to start. However, the storms warned me to be patient, and I deferred my departure till next morning. Long before dawn, on Saturday, January 13th, the mules were saddled, bridled, and charged with our scanty luggage. After a hasty breakfast, we shook hands with the old sultan, the eunuch, mounted and pricked through the desert streets. Suddenly my weakness and sickness left me, so potent a drug is joy. And as we passed the gates, loudly salaaming to the warders, who were crouching over the fire inside, a weight of care and anxiety fell from me like a cloak of lead. Yet I had time upon the top of my mule, 
for musing upon how melancholy a thing is success. Whilst failure inspirits a man, attainment reads the sad prosy lesson that all our glories are shadows, not substantial things. Truly the sayer, disappointment is the salt of life, a salutary bitter which strengthens the mind for fresh exertion and gives a double value to the prize. This shade of melancholy soon passed away. We made a direct line for Condura. At 1 p.m. we safely threaded the Gallus Pass, and about an hour afterwards we exclaimed, Alhamdulillah, at the sight of the Sagara in the distant Marar Prairie. Entering the village, we discharged our firearms. The men gave cordial poignets de main. Some danced with joy to see us return alive. They had heard our being imprisoned, bastinadoed, slaughtered. They swore that the Gerard was raising an army to rescue or revenge us. In fact, we had been their kinsmen. More excitement could not have been displayed. Lastly, in true humility, crept forward the end of time, who, as he kissed my hand, was on the point of tears. A pleasant evening was spent in recounting our perils, as travelers will do, and complimenting one another upon the power of our star. At eight next morning, we rode to Walensi, and as we approached, all the villagers and wayfarers inquired if we were the party that had been put to death by the Emir of Harar. Loud congratulations and shouts of joy awaited our arrival. The calendar was in a paroxysm of delight. Both Scheherazade and Dinarazade were affected with giggling and what might be blushing. We reviewed our property and found that the one-eyed had been a faithful steward, so faithful indeed that he had well-nigh starved the two women. Presently appeared the Gerard and his sons, bringing with them my books. The former was at once invested with a gaudy Abyssinian tobe of many colors, which he sallied forth from the cottage, the admired of all admirers. The pretty wife, Sudia, and the good Kyra were made happy by sundry gifts of huge Birmingham earrings, brooches, and bracelets, scissors, needles, and thread. The evening, as usual, ended in a feast. We were obliged to halt a week at Walensi to feed, for both man and beast lay in a stock of strength for the long desert march before us, to buy onions, tobacco, spices, wooden platters, and a sort of bread called karanji. Here I made my grammar and vocabulary of the Harari tongue under the supervision of Maud Said and the Ali the poet, a Somali educated at Harar, who knew Arabic, Somali, Gala, and Harar languages. On January 21st, I wanted to start, but Sheikh Jami appeared with all the incurables of the country. Nobody can form an idea of the difficulties that an Eastern will put in your way when you want to start, and unfortunately, in nine cases out of ten, the ruses they have resort to do, do prevent your starting. Now, in this case, I decided that talismans were the best and safest medicines in these mountains. The sheikh doubted them, but when I exhibited my diploma as a master Sufi, a new light broke upon him and in his attendants. Verily, he hath declared himself this day, whispered each to his neighbor, solely mystified. Sheikh Jami carefully inspected the document, raised it reverentially to his forehead, muttered prayers, and owned himself my pupil. Now, however, all my followers had got some reason why they could not go, so I sauntered out alone, attended only by the Hamal, and in spite of the chief summoning me to halt, I took an abrupt leave and went off and entered the Marar Prairie with pleasure. The truants joined us later on, and we met a party whose chief, a Somali, expressed astonishment at our escaping from Harar, told us that the Berberi were incensed with us for leaving the direct road, advised us to push on that night and to wear the bush once the Midjans would use their poisoned arrows. The Berberi had offered a hundred cows for our person, dead or alive. 
Then my party sat down to debate. They palavered for three hours. They said that the camels could not walk, that the cold of the prairies was death to man till darkness came on. Experience had taught me that it was a waste of time to debate overnight about dangers to be faced the next day. So I ate my dates, drank my milk, and lay down to enjoy sweet sleep in the tranquil silence of the desert. Although I did not know it till after my return from Berberah, Gerard Adan was my greatest danger. If his plotting had succeeded, it would have cost him dear, but would also have proved fatal to me. The 23rd of January passed in the same manner, and the explanation I had with my men was that on the morrow at dawn, I would cross the Morar Prairie by myself, and we started at dawn on the 24th, giving a wide berth to the Berberis, whose campfires were quite visible at a distance. As we were about to enter the lands of the harbor Awal, our enemies, a week would elapse before we could get protection. We had resolved to reach the coast within the fortnight, instead of which a month's march was in prospect. Suddenly, B.U. appeared, and I proposed to him that he should escort the caravans to Zela, and that I and the two others who had accompanied me to Harar would mount our mules, only carrying arms and provisions for four days. I pushed through the land of our enemies, the harbor Awal. In the land we were to traverse, every man's spear would be against us, so I chose the desert roads and carefully avoided all the crawls. It was with serious apprehension that I pocketed all my remaining provisions, five biscuits, a few limes, a few lumps of sugar. Any accident to our mules, any delay would starve us. We were traversing a desert where no one would sell us meat or milk and only one water bottle in the whole party. We rode 35 miles over awful tracks. Our toil was rendered doubly dreadful by the Eastern traveler's dread. The demon of thirst rode like care between us. For 24 hours, we did not taste water. The sun parched our brains. The mirage mocked us at every turn and the effect was a species of monomania. As I jogged along with eyes closed against the fiery air, no image unconnected with the want suggested itself. Water ever lay before me, water lying deep in the shady well, water in streams bubbling icy from the rock, water in pellucid lakes, inviting me to plunge and revel in their treasures. Now an Indian cloud was showering upon me, fluid more precious than molten pearl, than an invisible hand offered a bowl for which the mortal part would gladly have bartered years of life. Then, drear contrast, I opened my eyes to a heat-reeking pain and a sky of that eternal metallic blue, so lovely to painter and poet, so blank and death-like to us, us whose something was tempest rainstorm and the huge purple nimbus. I tried to talk. It was in vain, to sing in vain, vainly to think. Every idea was bound up in one subject, water. As a rule, 12 hours without water in the desert during hot weather will kill a man. We had another frightful journey to the next water. I never suffered severely from thirst, but on this expedition, probably it was in consequence of being at the time, but in weak health so soon after Mecca. A few more hours and the little party would have been food for the desert beasts. We were saved by a bird. When we had been 36 hours without water, we could go no further, and we were prepared to die the worst of all deaths. The short twilight of the tropics was drawing in. I looked up and saw a kata, or sand grouse, with its pigeon-like flight making for the nearer hills. These birds must drink at least once a day, and generally, tor generally towards the evening, when they are safe to carry water in their bills to their young. I cried out, see the kata, see the kata. I revived at once, took heart, and followed the bird, which suddenly plunged down about a hundred yards away, showing us a charming spring, a little shaft of water about two feet in diameter, diameter in a margin of green. We jumped from our saddles, and men and beasts plunged their heads into the water and drank till they could drink no more. I have never since shot a kata. 
with unspeakable delight after every every after another 30 hours we saw in the distance a patch of lively green our animals sent the blessing from afar they raised their drooping ears and started with us at canter until turning a corner we suddenly sighted sundry little wells to spring from the saddle to race with our mules who now feared not the crumbling sides of the pits to throw ourselves into the muddy pools to drink a long slow draft then to dash the water over our burning faces took less time than to recount a calmer inspection showed a necessity for caution the surface was alive with tadpoles and insects. Prudence, however, had little power at that time. We drank and drank and then drank again. As our mules had fallen with avidity upon the grass, I proposed to pass a few hours near the wells. My companions, however, pleading the old fear of lions, led the way before dark to a deserted kraal upon a neighboring hill. We had marched this time about 30 hours eastward and had entered a safe country belonging to the Goba, our guide's clan. There's nothing so dreadful as crossing a country full of blocks and boulders piled upon one another in rugged steps, and it was such a ravine, the splungeon of Smalleyland, that we had to dismount. To a laden camel, it is almost impossible. The, fed, the best-fed horses, mules, and asses, having to perform the work of goats instead of their own, are worn out by it after a few hours. And this was what I had, had I and my party to do. And often the boulders were covered with thorns two inches long tipped with wooden points as sharp as a needle. After three days of hard traveling in this way, we saw the face of a man, some shepherds who fled at our approach. We then followed an undulating growth of parched grass, shaping our course for Jebel Almas, to sailors the chief landmark of this coast, and for a certain thin blue stripe on the far horizon, the sea, upon which we gazed with gladdened eyes. That night we arrived at a crawl, unsaddled, and began to make ourselves comfortable when we found we had fallen upon the Ayal Shirdan, the bitterest, our bitterest enemies. They asked, What tribe be ye? I boldly answered, Of Haber Gerhagis. Thereupon issued a war of words. They rudely insisted on knowing what had taken from us at Harar, when a warrior armed with two spears came forward, recognized the end of time, and they retired but spoke of fighting. So we made ready with our weapons and bade them come on. But while they were considering, we saddled our mules and rode off. We stopped at three villages, and the Hamal failed to obtain even a drop of water from his relations. It was most distressful, as men and beasts were faint from thirst, so I determined to push forward for water that night. Many times the animals stopped, a mute hint that they could go no further, but I pushed on, and the rest had learned to follow without a word. The moon arose, and still we tottered on. About midnight, the lightful sound, the murmur of the distant sea. Revived by the music, we pushed on more cheerily. At three in the morning, we found some holes which supplied us with bitter water, truly delicious after 15 hours' thirst. Repeated draft of this element and coarse stubbly grass saved us and our mules. Rain came on, but we slept like the dead. At six, we resumed our march, going slowly along the seacoast, and at noon, we were able to sit on the sands and bathe in the sea. Our beasts could hardly move, and slippery mud added to their troubles. At 3 p.m., we got a patch of grass and halted the animals to feed, in a mile further, some wells where we again rested them, watered them, finished our last mouthful of food, and prepared for a long night march. We managed to pass all our enemies in the dark, and they cursed the star that had enabled us to slip unhurt through their hands. I was obliged to call a halt within four miles of Berbera. The animals could not move, neither could the men, except the Hamal and I, and they fell fast asleep on the stones. As soon as we could go on, a long dark line appeared upon the sandy horizon, the silhouettes of shipping showing against sea and sky. 
A cry of joy burst from every mouth. Cheers, boys, cheer. All to our toils here touch their end. The end of time still whispered anxiously lest enemies might arise. We wound slowly and cautiously round the southern portion of the sleeping town, through bone heaps and jackals tearing their unsavory prey, straight into the quarter of the Ayal Gedid, our protectors. Anxiously, I inquired of my if my comrades had left Berbera and heard with delight that they were there. It was two o'clock in the morning, and we had marched 40 miles. I dismounted at the huts where my comrades were living. A glad welcome, a dish of rice, and a glass of strong waters made amends for past privations and fatigue. The servants and the wretched mules were duly provided for, and I fell asleep, conscious of having performed a feat which, like a certain ride to York, will live in local annals for many and many a year. Great fatigue is seldom followed by long sleep. Soon after sunrise, I woke, hearing loud voices, seeing mass, masses of black faces and tawny wigs. The Berbera people, who had been informed of our five-day ride, swore that the thing was impossible, that we had never, could never, have been near Harar, but were astonished when they found it was true. I then proceeded to inspect my attendants and cattle. The former were delighted, having acquitted themselves of their trust. The poor mules were by no means so easily restored. Their backs were cut to the bone by the saddle. Their heads drooped sadly. Their hams showed dread marks of the spear point. I directed them to be washed in the sea, to be dressed with cold water bandages and copiously fed. Through a broad gap called the Dust Malable, appear in fine weather the granite walls of Wagar and Goulaise, 5,700 feet above the sea level. Lieutenant Hearn found it would make an admirable sanitarium. The Emporium of Eastern Africa has a salubrious climate, abundance of sweet water, a mild monsoon, a fine open country, an excellent harbor, a highly productive soil, is the meeting place of commerce, has few rivals, and for half the money wasted on Aden, might have been covered with houses, gardens, and trees. My companions and I, after a day's rest, made some excursions. We had a few difficulties about our albans, or protectors. We did not choose to be dictated to so there was a general council of the elders. It took place upon the shore, each chief forming a semicircle with his followers, all squatting on the sand with shield and spear planted upright in the ground. I entered the circle sword in hand and sat down in their midst. After much murmuring had gone on, the chief asked in a loud voice, Who is thy protector? The reply was Burhal Nuh, followed by, followed by an Arabic speech as long as an average sermon. And then, shouldering my blade, I left the circle abruptly. It was a success. They held a peace conference, and the olive waved over the bravest of Berbera. On the 5th of February, 1855, I left my comrades pro tem and went on board El Kassab, or the Reed, the ill-omened name of our cranky craft, and took with me the Hamal, Long Guled, and the End of Time, who were in danger, and rejoiced at leaving Berbera with sound skins. I met with opposition at landing. I could not risk a quarrel so near Berbera and was returning to moralize on the fate of Burkhart. After a successful pilgrimage, refused admittance to Aaron's tomb at Sidai, when a Bedouin ran to tell us we might wander where we pleased. The captain of the reed drew off a great deal further than I ordered, and when I went down to go on board, the vessel was a mere speck upon the sea horizon. He managed to cast anchor at last after driving his crazy craft through a bad sea. I stood on the shore making signs for a canoe, but he did not choose to see me till 1 p.m. As soon as I found myself on quarterdeck, Dawir el-Farman, shift the yard, I shouted with a voice of thunder. The answer was a great hubbub, 
He surely will not sail in a sea like this, asked the trembling captain of my companions. He will, sententiously quoth the Hamal, with burley rod, burley nod. It blows wind, remonstrated the rye. And if it blew fire, I asked the Hamal, with the air, Goganard, meaning that from the calamity of Frankish obstinacy there was no refuge. A kind of death wail rose, which during which, to hide untimely laughter, I retreated. I retreated to a large drawer in the stern of the vessel called a cabin. There my ears could distinguish the loud entreaties of the crew, vainly urging my attendants to propose a day's delay. Then one of the garrison, accompanied by the captain, who shook as with fever, resolved to act forlorn hope and bring a few unfair uh, of phrases to bear upon the Frank's hard brain. Scarcely, however, had the head of the sentence been delivered before he was playfully upraised by his bushy hair and ha a handle somewhat more substantial, carried out of the cabin, thrown like a bag of biscuit on the deck. The case was hopeless. All strangers plunged into the sea, the popular way of landing in East Africa. The anchor was raised, weighed, the ton of sail shaken out, and the reed began to dip and rise in the yeasty sea laboriously as an alderman dancing a polka. For the first time in my life, I had the satisfaction of seeing the Somal unable to eat, unable to eat mutton. In seasickness and needless terror, the captain, crew, and passengers abandoned us all the baked sheep, baked sheep, which we three, not believing, not being believers in the evil eye, ate from head to trotters with especial pleasure. That night the waves broke over us. The end of time occupied himself in roaring certain horizons which are reputed to calm stormy seas. He desisted, desisted only when Long Gouled pointed out that a wilder gust seemed to follow, as in derision, each more emphatic period. The captain, a noted reprobate, renowned on shore for his knowledge of erotic verse and admiration of the fair sex, prayed with fervor. He was joined by several of the crew who apparently found the charm of novelty in the edifying exercise. About midnight, a Sultan Elbar, or Sea King, a species of whale, appeared close to our counter, and as these animals are famous for upsetting vessels in waggishness, the sight elicited a yell, elicited a yell of terror and a chorus of religious exclamations. On the morning of Friday, the 9th of February, 1855, we hove in sight of Jebel Shamsan, the loftiest peak on the Aden crater, and ere evening fell, I had the pleasure of seeing the faces of friends and comrades once more. <clears throat> I got about five more pages. All right. If I had let well alone, I should have done well, but I wanted to make a new expedition nowards via Harar on a larger and more imposing scale. For that, I went back to Aden. On April 7th, 1855, I returned successful. Lieutenant King, Indian Navy, commanded the gunboat Mahi and entered the harbor of Berbera with us on board. I was in command of a party of 42 men, armed, and we established an agency and selected the site of our camp in a place where we could have the protection of the gunboat. But the commander of the schooner had orders to relieve another ship, so it could not remain and superintend the departure of the expedition. It was the time after the fair, and one might say that Berbera was empty and that there was scarcely anyone but ourselves. Our tents were pitched in one line. Stroyans to the right, Hearn and myself in the middle, and Speak on the left. 
The baggage was placed between our tents. Camels were in front, the horses and mules behind us. Two sentries all night were regularly relieved and visited by ourselves. We were very well received when they listened with respectful attention to a letter in which the political resident had aided and joined them to treat us with consideration and hospitality. We had purchased 56 camels. Ogadean caravan was anxious for our escort. If we had departed then, perhaps all would have been well, but we expected instruments and other necessaries by the mid-April mail from Europe. Three days afterwards, a craft from Aden came in with a dozen Samals who wanted to accompany us. Unfortunately, I feasted the commander and the crew, which caused them to remain. We little knew that our lives hung upon a thread, and had the vessel departed, as she would otherwise have done, the night before the attack, nothing could have saved us. Between 2 and 3 a.m. of April 19th, there was a strong cry that the enemy was upon us, 350 strong. Hearing a rush of men like a stormy wind, I sprang up and called for my saber and sent Hearn to ascertain the force of the foray. Armed with a colt, he went to the rear and left the camp, the direction of danger, collecting some of the guards, others having already disappeared, and fired two shots into the assailants. Then finding himself alone, he turned hastily towards the tent, and in so doing was tripped up by the ropes, and as he arose, a Somali appeared in the act of striking at him with a club. Hearn fired, floored the man, and rejoining me, declared that the enemy was in great force and the guard nowhere. Meanwhile, I had aroused Stroyan and Speak, who were sleeping in the extreme right and left tents. The former, it is presumed, arose to defend himself, but as the sequel shows, we never saw him alive. Speak, awakened by the report of firearms, but supposing it to be the normal false alarm, a warning to plunders, remained where he was, presently hearing clubs rattling upon his tent and feet shuffling around. He ran to my row tie, which we prepared to defend as long as possible. The enemy swarmed like hornets with shouts and screams, intending to terrify and proving that overwhelming odds were against us. It was by no means easy to avoid the shades of night, the jobbing of javelins, and the long, heavy daggers thrown at our legs from under and through the opening of the tent. We three remained together. Hearn knelt by my right and on my left was Speak, guarding the entrance. I stood in the center, having nothing but a saber. The revolvers were used by my companions with deadly effect. Unfortunately, there was but one pair. When the fire was exhausted, Hurd went to, to search for his powder horn, and that failing to find some spears usually tied to the tent pole. Whilst thus engaged, he saw a man breaking into the rear of our row tie and came back to inform me of the circumstance. At this time, about five minutes after the beginning of the affray, the tent had been almost beaten down, an Arab custom in, with which all were familiar, and we had been entangled up in its folds like mice in a trap we should have been speared with unpleasant facility. I gave the word for escape and sallied out, closely followed by Hearn and Speak in the rear. The prospect was not agreeable. About 20 men were kneeling and crouching at the tent entrance, whilst many dusky figures stood farther off or ran about shouting the war cry, or the shouts and blows drove away our camels. Among the enemy were many of our friends and attendants. The coast being open to them, they naturally ran away, firing a few useless shots and receiving a modicum of flesh wounds. After breaking through the mob at the tent entrance, imagining that I saw the form of Stroyan lying upon the sand, I cut my way with my saber towards it amongst dozens of Somal, whose war clubs worked without mercy, whilst the Bay values, who was violently pushing me out of the fray, rendered the strokes of my saber uncertain. This individual was cool and collected, 
Though incapacitated by a sore right thumb from using the spear, he did not shun danger and passed unhurt through the midst of the enemy. His efforts, however, only illustrated the venerable adage, defend me from my friends. I mistook him in the dark and turned to cut him down. He cried out in alarm. The well-known voice stopped me, and that instant's hesitation allowed a spearman to step forward and leave his javelin in my mouth and retire before he could be punished. Escaping as by a miracle, I sought some support. Many of our Somal and servants lurking in the darkness offered to advance, but tailed off to a man as we were approached, approached the foe. Presently, the values reappeared and led me towards the place where he believed my three comrades had taken refuge. I followed him, sending the only man that showed presence of mind, one Golob of the Yusuf tribe, to bring back the Antaride craft from the spit into the center of the harbor. Again, losing the values in the darkness, I spent the interval be before dawn, wandering in search of my comrades and lying down when overpowered with faintness and pain. As the day broke, with my remaining strength, I reached the head of the creek, was carried into the vessel, and persuaded the crew to arm themselves and visit the scene of our disasters. Meanwhile, Hearn, who had close, closely followed me, fell back, using the butt end of his discharge six-shooter upon the hard heads around him. In doing so, he came upon a dozen men who, though they loudly vociferated, killed the Franks who were killing the Somal, allowed him to pass uninjured. He then sought his comrades in the empty huts of the town, and at early dawn was joined by the Balias, who was similarly employed. When day broke, he also sent a Negro to stop the native craft, which was apparently sailing out of the harbor, and in due time he came on board. With the exception of sundry stiff blows with the war club, Hearn had the fortune to escape unhurt. On the other hand, Speak's escape was in every way wonderful. Sallying from the tent, he leveled his Dean and Adams close to an assailant's breast. The pistol refused to revolve. A sharp blow of a war club upon the chest felled our comrade, who was in the rear and unseen. When he fell, two or three men sprang upon him, pinioned his hands behind him, felt him for concealed weapons, an operation to which he submitted in some alarm, and led him towards the rear, as he supposed to be slaughtered. There Speak, who could scarcely breathe from the pain of the blow, asked a captor to tie his hands before instead of behind, and begged a drop of water to relieve his excruciating thirst. The savage defended him against a number of the Somal, who came up threatening and brandishing their spears. He brought a cloth for the wounded man to lie upon, and lost no time in procuring a draft of water. Speak remained upon the ground till dawn. During the interval, he witnessed the war dance of the savages, a scene striking in the extreme, the tallest and largest warriors marching with the deepest and most solemn tones, the song of thanksgiving. At a little distance, the gray, uncertain light disclosed four or five mine men lying desperately hurt, whilst their kinsmen kneaded their limbs, pouring water upon their wounds and placing lumps of dates in their stiffening hands. As day broke, the division of plunder caused angry passions to rise. The dead and dying were abandoned. One party made a rush upon the candle, cattle with shouts and yells drove them off towards the wilds. Some loaded themselves with goods. Others fought over pieces of cloth, which they tore with hand and dagger, whilst the disappointed, vociferating with rage, struck at one another and brandished their spears. More than once during these scenes, a panic seized them, and they moved off in a body to some distance. And there's little doubt that had our guard struck one blow, we might have still won the day. Speak's captor went to see his own portion of the spoil when a Somal came up and asked in Hindustani what business the Frank had in their country, and added, added that he would kill them if a Christian, but spare the life of a brother Moslem. The wounded man replied that he was going to Zanzibar 
and that he was still a Nazarene, and therefore that the work had better be done at once. The savage laughed and passed on. He was succeeded by a second, who, equally compassionate, whirled a sword round his head, twice pretending to strike, but returning to the plunder without doing damage. Presently came another matter, manner of assailant. Speak, who had extricated his hands, caught the spear leveled at his breast, but received at the same moment a blow which, paralyzing his arm, caused him to lose his hold. In defending his heart from a succession of thrusts, he received severe wounds on the back of his hand, his right shoulder, and his left thigh. Pausing a little, the wretch crossed to the other side and suddenly passed his spear clean through the right leg of the wounded man. The latter, smelling death, then leapt up and, taking advantage of his, his assailant's terror, rushed headlong towards the sea. Looking behind, he avoided the javelin hurled at his back and had the good fortune to run, without further accident, the gauntlet of a score of missiles. When pursuit was discontinued, he sat down, faint from a loss of blood, upon a sandhill. Recovering strength by a few minutes' rest, he staggered on to the town where some old women directed him to us. Then, pursuing his way, he fell in with a party sent to seek him, and by their aid reached the craft. Having walked and run at least three miles after receiving eleven wounds, two of which had pierced his thighs. A touching lesson on how difficult it is to kill a man in sound health. My difficulty was, with my comrade's aid, to extract the javelin which transfixed my jaws. It destroyed my palate and four good back teeth and left wounds on my two cheeks. When we... When we three survivors had reached the craft, Yusuf, the captain, armed his men with muskets and spears, landed them near the camp, and ascertained that the enemy, expecting a fresh attack, had fled, carrying away our cloth, tobacco, swords, and other weapons. The corpse of Stroyan was then brought on board. Our lamented comrade was already stark and cold. A spear had traversed his heart, another had speared his ab pierced his abdomen, and a frightful gash, apparently of a sword, had opened the upper part of his forehead. The body had been bruised with war clubs, and thighs showed marks of violence after death. This was the severest affliction that befell us. We had lived together like brothers. Stroyan was a universal favorite, and his sterling qualities of manly courage, physical endurance, and steady perseverance had augured for him a bright career, thus prematurely cut off. Truly melancholy to us was the contrast between the evening when he sat with us in full, full of life and spirits, and the morning when we saw amongst us a livid corpse. We had hoped to preserve the remains of our friend for interment at Aden, but so rapid were the effects of his exposure that we were compelled most reluctantly on the morning of the 20th of April to commit them to the deep, Hearn reading the funeral service. Then with heavy hearts, we set sail for the Arabian shore and after a tedious two days carried our friends the news of the unexpected disaster. Richard F. Burton. When Speak wrote the manuscript of this affair and in Blackwood, and also in his book on the sources of the Nile, he said that he was the head of the expedition. He had given the order for the night, and it was before him the spies were brought. He was the first to turn out, and no one but he had the courage to defend himself. It is hardly worthwhile to contradict it. It is obvious that this expedition could only be commanded by a man who knew Arabic and some of the other languages, which, of which he was perfectly ignorant. So the results of this expedition, to sum up in short, were that they barely escaped being caught like mice in a trap by having their tents thrown down upon them. The four fought bravely against 350 Badawi. Poor Stroyan was killed. Hearn was untouched. Richard and Speak were desperately wounded, though they all cut their way gallantly through the enemy. 
Poor Speak had 11 wounds, and Richard, with a lance transfixing his jaws, which carried away four back teeth and part of his palate, wandered up and down the coast suffering from his wounds, fever, hunger, and thirst consequent on the wounds. But they met, they carried off the dead body of their comrade, and were taken on board the native dhow or boat, which the fortunate accident of Richard's hospitality had retained there just half an hour, long enough to save them, and the natives sacked their property. They were so badly wounded, he had to return to England, and there his wounds soon healed, and he picked up health. He rendered an account of his explorations before the Royal Geographical Society. After a month's rest, he obtained leave to volunteer for the Crimea. Here I would go rather give his here I would rather give his own original manuscript word for word because it is so fresh and in a few pages gives a better insight into outspoken truth than many other large volumes.